Father, we ask that you just bless this time tonight as we come and study your word. And Lord, we look forward to learning and gleaning from your word as we pick it up in chapter 7. These stories written to us, not just to give us a history lesson, but Lord, a spiritual lesson. And just as we saw last week that um, it was Elijah that prayed for his servant, for his eyes to be opened up, his spiritual eyes, that's what we pray, that our eyes would be opened up, our hearts would be softened, and our ears opened up to hear from you what you want to say to us tonight. So bless this time, help us be attentive, because I know that as uh, we find ourselves in, in the evening and after a long day, we can uh, be tired, and understandably so. So Lord, help us to be attentive and, and uh, to be um, ones that are listening and, and gleaning from your word right now. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So at this time, as you recall last week, that as we ended chapter 6, that it was Syria that had come down to Samaria. Samaria is the capital um, of the ten northern tribes of Israel called the House of Israel. And they sieged the, the city. The cities, the ancient cities, of course, at that time would have walls around them. And as they would surround the city, the Syrian troops, um, they would be stationed there. And the people inside the uh, city of Samaria would be safe for the time being. But here's the thing about a siege. It would go on for weeks. It would go on for months. And no food would be able to get in. So at this time, as we ended um, chapter 6, we saw that the Syrian troops came in. The Syrians are the main enemies of Israel and also has been doing fighting against Judah as well, the southern kingdom. And, and Syria has been with the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad II, making these raids against uh, Israel. And now they come and they siege Samaria. And, and Samaria is locked down. Uh, no one is getting out, but no food is getting in and the people are starving. And one of the things that we discussed last week, and I think that it's worth um, being reminded of as we continue in our text here tonight, that the house of Israel, of course, is not in a good place spiritually. We saw that as uh, the king is walking on the wall in chapter 6 last week, that a woman cried out and said, hey, um, we're starving. We ended up eating one of my friend's sons, and, and um, the king heard that. They had, you know, uh, turned to that, to where they were eating donkey heads and dove droppings and eating one another. And it tells us not only of the severity of what was taking place where they had no food, but it tells us of the condition of the nation spiritually. And you see, when God had brought his people to the mountain of God, that is Mount Sinai, when he had freed them from Egypt, God made a covenant with the children of Israel. And he said to them that if you follow after me and you believe in me, then I'm going to bless you and I'm going to save you from your enemies and you're going to be blessed in the land and you're going to experience a lot of goodness. And if you don't, then what's going to happen is, is that you're going to find yourself being held captive by your enemies, defeated by your enemies. And that's exactly what has happened to Samaria because all of the kings of Israel were bad kings. They were idol worshipers. And the king of Israel at this time was no different, and the people were involved in idol worship as well. They were very much involved in Baal worship. And here in Samaria, the capital of the house of Israel, was a temple that had been built dedicated to the false god Baal. So the people are locked in. And I just want to remind us 
that if we are ever in that place of disobedience, uh, those who are, are, uh, have unbelief in the Lord, that there's a captivity that takes place. They are being held captive by the enemy, and he will blind them, and he will hold them in bondage. If we get involved in sin, it leads us to being held captive and in bondage. So that's what's happening here. So what we see is the king, he begins to blame Elijah. God in the darkness of the nation has brought light to them. And through the prophets, and Elijah was one of them, and then Elijah was ushered up into heaven, as we saw in chapter 2 of Second Kings. And then the mantle, the prophetic office, would fall on Elijah. And Elijah has been working miracles. And the king, when he sees the condition of people are starving and they're eating one another, what does he do? Rather than turn to the Lord, rather than repent, what he does is he blames Elijah. And he would say that God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elijah, the son of Hephat, remains on him today. And also, at the end of the chapter, when we ended our study last week, he also blames God. He says that, why should I wait for the Lord any longer? This calamity is coming from the Lord. But he refused to repent. So now we pick it up. Things are bad. He comes to king of Israel, and he comes to see Elijah. And he's blaming Elijah. He's blaming God for all of this. And we see that Elijah in chapter 7, verse 1, would say, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a, a shea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two shays of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, uh, could this thing be? And he said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. So Elijah claims the word of the Lord. Um, as here the king of Israel is blaming him for their problems, and people will do that. When they are experiencing bondage, as they're experiencing just terrible repercussions and consequences because of their disobedience or unbelief, what happens oftentimes is they will turn and blame God, won't they? Or they'll turn and they'll blame the Christians for it. And here, Elisha, we're going to see that he gives the word of the Lord, as we just read in verses 1 and 2, and he says, at this time tomorrow, there's going to be abundance. And the officer of the king, the servant of the king, says, no way. No way is that going to happen, even if, if God opened up the windows in heaven, that this thing can't be. And you got to remember that he is doubting the power of God because he doesn't have faith in the Lord. And oftentimes people, they you know, doubt that there is a God or that God is at work uh, in the world. Um, they dismiss God, and that's what this individual is doing. But I want to bring it home a little bit closer to us. Because even as Christians, sometimes we can be faced with difficulties. We can be faced where it seems like we're surrounded with difficulties or problems. We seem like we're in bondage to a situation, whatever it might be. And, and we cry out to the Lord, but we think, Lord, can you really work? And you see, this individual, this servant of, of the king, he's saying this because he can't figure out in his own understanding how it is that the severity of this problem is going to be solved in a 24-hour period. That you're saying, Elijah, by tomorrow that there's going to be normality and people are going to be buying food again and, and uh, things are going to be well? He can't understand it. And oftentimes, as Christians, we become weak in our faith. We falter in our faith. 
because we face difficulties and, and problems, and we think, Lord, how is it that you're going to work in this situation? I, I don't understand it. I can't figure it out. You see, the Lord wants us not to trust in our own understanding. And you know what Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but acknowledge him in all your ways and he will direct your paths. And the Lord desires for us to come to that place where we say, Lord, I'm going to trust in you and I'm going to rest in your love and I'm going to stand on your promises. And I may not be able to figure out how it is that you can work in my situation, but I know that you're true and you're going to do what is best for me and you're going to work on my behalf. And that's where the Lord wants us to be because oftentimes what we try to do is figure things out in our own understanding. And we make plans and we plot and, and we uh, make you know, all kinds of, of you know, schemes and how it is that we can get out of this situation or help ourselves rather than going to the Word of God and trusting in the power of God. There is no problem that is too difficult for him to work. And he wants us to be completely dependent upon him. So sometimes we will find ourselves where, you know what, our backs are up against the Red Sea, just as the children of Israel were, and two mountain ranges on both sides. And all they could do is cry out to the Lord, and the Lord parted the Red Sea. They didn't know how God was going to work, but God did work. And maybe you're here tonight, maybe you're in a situation where you're thinking, Lord, how are you going to work? Can you work? And the Lord says, I can work. I want you to just lean on me, not on your own understanding. Trust in me, stand on my promises, and know that I'm with you. And, and that's what the Lord desires to do with all of us. So here's the word that is given here. And we see that this word is given, and the, and the servant says, no way, it's not going to happen. Elijah says, well, you're going to see it, but you're not going to eat of it. And we're going to see what that means as we continue to read. But now the story shifts to outside of Samaria, where verse 3, now there are four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, why are you sitting here? Uh, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. If we sit here, we die also. Now therefore, come let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall only die. So here are four men outside of Samaria. And the reason that they're outside is because they have leprosy. And of course, leprosy, as we have discussed, was a highly contagious disease. If you had leprosy, you were isolated. You could not come into the town. You couldn't have contact with people. You couldn't have a job. You would live with other lepers. Uh, you were ones that lived in a tent-like colony or a cave-like colony. But here are these four guys. They're on the outside of the city. They're starving. They don't have anything to eat. And they come to the conclusion that we have three choices. We either we go into the city, which we're not supposed to do, but what good is that going to do? Because if we go to the city, we're just going to die. If we just sit here, our second choice, like what we're doing now, we're going to end up starving to death. And our third choice is this. Perhaps we can go and as we surrender to the Syrian army, maybe they might kill us, but we're going to die anyway. But maybe they'll spare our lives and they'll feed us. So that's really the only real choice that, that we have. So here are these four guys outside the city. They, they rose at twilight, verse 5, to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. 
And for the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. And therefore they rose and fled at twilight and let, left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. God intervenes now. And he causes a great noise of chariots. And they thought, the Syrians, that, man, we're being attacked. We're being attacked by the kings of the Hittites and the Egyptians. And this noise must have been an incredible, awesome noise that they heard and sight that they saw because it made them flee in haste. They didn't have the strength to rise up to fight. They you know, left everything. And what we're going to see here is as these four men go into the camp, they're going to go from tent to tent. They're going to go from pot to pot to eat. And they left everything. They left all the spoils. They left all their equipment. They, they um, just got up and they ran. And so this had to be something quite amazing for them to flee in that kind of way. And I think what the Syrians saw and what they heard was the same army that Elijah and his servant saw in the previous chapter. Just as we prayed that our eyes would be opened up, our spiritual eyes. And you remember the story in chapter 6 that it was the, the Syrians that were making these raids against Israel and these ambushes. And Elijah was telling the king of Israel, he said, hey, you know, the Syrians are going to be in this place on this day, so avoid that area. And the king of Syria was saying, hmm, something's going on here. They told him it's that prophet Elijah. He sees everything that goes on. He even knows what's going on in your private bedroom. So Ben-Hadad, number two, the king of Syria, orders his troops to surround the house and the village where Elijah was. And they got up, Elijah and his servant, in the morning. The servant goes out and he looks up and there's all these chariots and horses, this great Syrian army that surrounded them. And he says, uh-oh, we're in big trouble. He goes back in and he says, Elijah, look what's out there. And Elijah said, don't be afraid. And he prayed, you remember, Lord, open up his spiritual eyes. And his eyes were open, his spiritual eyes. And what did he see? He saw that the mountains all around Dothan and around Elijah's house was full of chariots of fire and horses. It was the army of the Lord. And I think that's what these guys are seeing at this time as well. They're seeing it and they're making themselves known, the army of the Lord. And it's an incredible sight and it's such a frightening sight that they just get up and they run for their lives. You see, here's the thing about the army of the Lord. The good news for you and for me is, number one, is that we belong to the army of the Lord and our commander is our Lord Jesus Christ. And I can't wait to the day when we come back with our Lord to establish his kingdom. And one day the Lord's going to lead us as we know that he's going to establish his kingdom as Revelation chapter 19 tells us. And we're going to come back with our Lord riding on white horses. And that's reality. That's what's going to happen. And the armies of the world that are gathered there in northern Israel in the valley of Jezreel are going to turn and try to keep the Lord from coming back. But to no prevail, the Lord will simply speak and he will destroy uh, those armies. He will judge the nations at that time. He will establish his kingdom and you and I are going to rule and reign with him. And the good news about being a part of the army of the Lord is that when we come back with the Lord, we don't even have to fight. The Lord's going to do it all and he's simply going to speak 
And his kingdom is going to be established. And we're going to rule and reign with the Lord. So that brings great comfort to you and to me, doesn't it? You see, the army of the Lord will either bring comfort to you and to me, because even in this life now, as we discussed last week, that as your eyes are opened up, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, as we learn from John's epistle in 1 John. And we face difficulties. We get surrounded with problems and all of this. But know this, that as Elijah said, we don't have to fear because those who are with us are more than those who are with them. The Lord is with you. And the Lord's going to help you. And his promises are true. So we can be comforted by that. And see, being a part of the Lord's army, you know, knowing the Lord, having a relationship with Jesus Christ, that brings comfort to you and to me. Or, if you are an unbeliever, it's going to bring terror. And it will bring terror to a world that has rejected Jesus Christ, just as it brought terror here to the Syrians as they fled for their lives. So this great noise comes up in verse 8, And when the lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into the tent and ate and drank, and carried from it silver and gold and clothing, and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent, and carried some from there also, and went and hid it. And, and then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. Uh, they go from tent to tent. They're taking the spoils. They're you know, looking at everything. They're hiding it. They go from pot to pot eating. I mean, they're carrying away the spoils. And, and they must be thinking, these guys, this is too good to be true. Look at this. This is wonderful. We're having our fill. Look at the spoils that we're able to, get, to have. And finally, it dawns on them. They, they said, wait a minute. We can't continue to do this. We can't continue to remain silent. There is a city that is locked down, that the people are starving. This is not good, and this is not right. And so we need to go and tell what's going on to the city. So that's what they do, as we read in verse 10. So they went and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, saying, We went to the Syrian camps, and surprisingly no one was there. Not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied in tents intact. And the gatekeepers called out, and they told it to the king's household inside. So the king arose in the night and said to his servants, Let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know what we are hungry, and therefore we have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they come out of the city, we will catch them alive and get into the city. And so what the king thinks is, as he's told by these lepers, they cry out, hey, there's no one in the Syrian camps. The tents are there, the pots are there, only the donkeys and the horses, they're all gone. We don't know what has happened. And the king has told that. He thinks it's a trick. Hey, the Syrians are just hiding and waiting for us to come out so they can kill us. He still doesn't believe the word from Elijah. He still at this point doesn't say, hmm, Elijah said that something was going to happen, normality was going to come, and, and things were going to be fine tomorrow, but yet he thinks it's a trick, it's not going to happen. So they come up with a plan, verse 13, and one of the servants answered and said, please let several men take five of the remaining horses which are left in the city. Look, they may either become like all the multitude of Israel that are left in it, or indeed I say they may become like all the multitude of Israel left from those who are consumed. So let us send them and see. In other words, let us send out some riders and see what happens. What do we got to lose? I mean, what do we got to lose? The people are starving. So we need to do this. 
And we need to check out this situation. That may be a word to somebody here tonight. And what I mean by that is maybe the Lord has told you to step out. But there is doubt. There is fear in doing that. Maybe it's in talking to somebody. You know, talking to somebody that the Lord has told you, I want you to share the gospel or share truth with. Maybe a family member. Holidays are coming up with Thanksgiving and and with Christmas. And it's a time when we gather with friends. It's a time when we gather with family members and and co-workers. And maybe the Lord has put somebody on your heart and you're thinking, you know, I'd really like to share with them. I'd really like to, to, to tell them about the goodness of the Lord and His provision. But I'm afraid to do it. There's a saying that if you're afraid to try, you're guaranteed to fail. And I think that's something that we need to keep in mind at times. We always want to go with the leading of the Holy Spirit. But sometimes fear will keep us from doing what God has called us to do, whether it's sharing with somebody or maybe it's a certain area of your life. And I have seen it in Christians' lives where they know what God's word has to say, but I'm not going to do it because I'm afraid. I'm afraid I'm going to lose him. I'm afraid I'm going to lose her. I'm afraid that things are going to go bad and sour in this situation or at the workplace if I do what is right. And, and I know that I hear the voice of the Lord, but I don't want to do it you know, because I'm afraid that of, I might lose my job or I won't get that promotion. And the Lord is putting on your heart and putting his word into your heart what it is that he would have you to do. And you need to trust in him. And you need to know that as you do what the Lord calls you to do, and as he tells you to do, that he's going to be with you, and he's going to work, and he's going to work for good. And know that he's going to provide for you, and he's going to bless it. So we need to send some riders out there. We need to do this and see what's going on in verse 14. Therefore they took two chariots with horses, and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army, saying, Go and see. And they went after them uh, to the Jordan, and indeed all the road was full of garments and weapons which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned and told the king. So not only did they flee to camp, but they were scared out of their pants, literally. I mean, their garments are on the road, their weapons are on the road, they're running for their lives. And that's why, again, I think that this was obviously the army of the Lord, those, those you know, chariots of fire and, and horses that had surrounded them previously that they didn't see, but the Lord caused the noise. Perhaps they saw them, but they are very much afraid. It reminds me of the Roman soldiers at the tomb. Remember the Roman soldiers um, at the tomb that uh, they were secured the tomb uh, when Jesus was put into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And it was the angel that came and rolled away the stone. And it says that those Roman soldiers, those brave soldiers, were as dead men. They were so frightened. They were so terrified at the sight of that angel. An awesome sight. It reminds me of Daniel, how we see that when he saw the angel, that he was as though he were dead. Same with John, the revelator, there at the end of the Bible, that he saw the angel, and he was where he couldn't move. He was as though he was dead. The angelic creatures that, that we will see in heaven, some of them of great awesomeness, and, and um, it's going to be incredible to be able to see them. It reminds me of what we know of Luke chapter 2, that we will read again as 
we enter into the Christmas season, that there was Gabriel and the heavenly hosts out there in, in the fields that showed themselves to those shepherds. And those shepherds were afraid. They were terrified. And the message to them is don't be afraid. And the message to us is that we don't have to be afraid either. Because born in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Emmanuel, God with us. And the reason that we don't have to be afraid is God is with us. And God is for us. And we can look to him and know that he is true and he is faithful and that he is good. So here these guys, they flee for their lives and, and this awesome sight. In verse 16, the people went out and plundered the tents of the Syrians. So a shea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two shays of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed to the officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate, but the people trampled him in the gate, and he died just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. So the word of Elijah comes true. It, all of a sudden the people go, they take the spoils, you know, the, the siege is over with, and this servant of the king, he sees what happens, but he doesn't partake of it because the people trample him at the gate of the city. And so it happened just as the man of God in verse 18 had spoken to the king, saying, two shades of barley for a shekel, and say, fine flour for a shekel, shall be sold tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. Then an officer had answered the man of God and said, now look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened uh, to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he ended up dying. I, I think a couple main points in this chapter that are worth considering, and it's simply this. Verse 17 that we just read, the price of unbelief. The price of unbelief. And those who do not partake of, of God's provision and blessing will end up dying. They will end up dying spiritually. Jesus would come along to the people in Galilee and he would say to them that I am the bread of life that has come from heaven. And whoever believes in me shall never hunger and thirst again. And you see, Jesus has made provision for us, as you know, by going to the cross of Calvary and dying for our sins. All of us are like those men that are leprous, as we've talked about. It speaks of our state. Leprosy speaks of sin. We all were leprous at one time. Jesus Christ came to cleanse us and to feed us. He would say, come drink of the living waters. Come eat of me. He's talking about relationship and closeness is what he's talking about and belief in him. And those of us who have come and surrendered our hearts to Jesus Christ and turned to him for salvation because salvation is not found in anyone else or anything else. It only comes through Jesus Christ and our faith and trust in him. Then we partake of the Lord. And Jesus would say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. But for those who reject him, spiritual death is going to come. That is part of the message of the scriptures, and the gospel is good news, but part of the gospel message is that Jesus is the way to heaven, and there's no other way. And anyone who rejects Jesus Christ in the gospel message, the same will happen. That is, spiritual death is going to come to them. Physical death will come eventually, but spiritual death as well. And that's the first thing that we see. But the second thing, verse 9, that that we see here is here these four guys are in the camp as they go from pot to pot. They go from tent to tent. 
they're taking the spoils, you know, they're being blessed, and all of a sudden they said, wait a minute, this isn't right. There is a city that people are starving, and we keep the news to ourselves. We need to go and tell them, listen, you and I have been blessed because we have partaken of the provision of the Lord. And we've been blessed because we belong to the Lord. So why do we want to keep that news to ourselves? There are people in this city that they are starving and they are dying because they don't have Jesus Christ. And a lot of people don't know the true gospel message. So why do you want to keep the message to yourself? When you have been blessed, when you know the greatest news that has ever been proclaimed, that the tomb is empty and Jesus Christ has come and delivered us and freed us from the bondage of sin and the penalty of sin. Why would we ever want to keep that news to ourselves? We want to tell starving people and dying people that Jesus Christ loves you and died for you, has made provision for you. So may we consider that as we enter into the holiday seasons and into a new year. People all around us, we don't want to keep that news to ourselves. It's not right. But to be able to proclaim it, as we have opportunity and the Lord leads us, because all of us, listen, every single one of us in this room, we know people that are dying. They're dying spiritually. And we need to pray for them and we need to proclaim the good news to them of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So a wonderful story that we can learn from and, and, and we see God's grace and mercy extended out to His people once again. But chapter 8, Elijah spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go, you and your household, and stay wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and furthermore it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household and dwelt in the land of the Philistines seven years. And it came to pass at the end of seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, and she went to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. So you recall in First Kings chapter 4 that the woman that the Shunammite woman had shown hospitality to Elijah and his servant. Whenever they came by, she you know, fixed them food and fixed up a room for them to stay, a bed and a nightstand for Elijah. And Elijah wanted to show kindness to her and bless her for her hospitality. So she ends up having a son in her late years, and her husband was old. And that was a blessing to her, a tremendous blessing. But then, as you recall in Second. Kings chapter 4, that that woman would end up uh, having her son, her son ended up dying, and what she did is she found Elijah, and Elijah would raise him from the dead. So that's the reference being made here. And in chapter 8 here, we see that this woman was told by Elijah that there's going to be famine in the land for seven years, so you need to go to Philistine country along the coast, and you need to, to go there because it's going to last for seven years. And she comes back, and she knows that you know she needs to, to get her land back, and um, she's going to appeal to the king, and that's what uh, Elijah is going to have her to do. In verse 4, the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, please, all the great things Elijah has done. So Gehazi, remember he was the one that was struck with leprosy in chapter 5? So many scholars believe that this is kind of an insert. This story happens before Gehazi was struck with leprosy. 
And here is Gehazi. He tells the king, this is what has happened. The king is interested in knowing, you know, how's Elijah doing these things? What is he you know, doing and working miracles. He, he wants to hear the testimony uh, of the story of this woman. In verse 5, it happened as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead to life, that there was a woman whose son he had restored to life, appealing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son whom Elijah restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed a certain officer for her, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the proceeds from the fields from the day that she left the land until now. So the testimony would be a word to the king of God's faithfulness and truthfulness and power. And the king restores the land and all the proceeds from the time that she had left. Listen again. Sometimes when you hear the word of the Lord, you can become afraid. And I think that this story here shows us, as she was told, go to the land of the Philistines. And she would go, and she thought, probably, I'm going to lose my land, I'm going to lose everything that I have. Inheritance was very important. I'm going to have nothing for my sin. But she comes back, and because she obeyed the word of the Lord, she was blessed. And as you obey the word of the Lord, you're going to see that God's going to provide for you somehow, some way. And you're going to see his faithfulness, and you're going to see his truthfulness, and you're going to see his power working in your life. And then you know what else you're going to see? It's going to be a witness to others. It's going to be a witness to others as people are going to say, wow, you know what? God is real because I see it in your life. And God does work. And they're going to see the reality of Jesus Christ working in your life. And that will be a powerful witness. And as we continue reading, Ben-Hadad of Damascus, and Elijah goes to him, verse 7 tells us, was he was sick and it was told to Elijah, saying, the man of God has come here, and, and the king said to Hazael, take a present in your hand and go and meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, shall I recover from this disease? So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him of every good thing of Damascus, 40 camel loads, and he came and stood before him and said, your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, sent me to you, saying, shall I recover from this disease? So here is the king of Syria. He is, um, you know, Near, he's sick, he's wondering if he's going to die. Here is a guy that wanted to put Elijah to death in chapter 6. Now he's inquiring of Elijah. Now he wants to embrace him. And he has gifts, and he's thinking he can pay off Elijah to, you know, to get this healing. Know this, you can't buy off God. You cannot buy your salvation. It is a free gift to those who surrender their hearts to Jesus Christ. We have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. But sometimes, again, as we bring it home a little bit closer for us as believers, sometimes we can think, if, if I do this, I can butter God up. And I can butter him up and have favor with him. I can, you know, uh, get his approval. He'll love me more. And we miss out on the grace of the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do what is right. And I'm not saying that God won't bless you because you do what's right. But hear me out. Don't think that you can buy God's grace and love. Because grace means the unmerited favor of God. And there are those that are out there that will tell you that you have to earn God's grace. And you have to earn God's salvation. And you have to earn God's favor. 
And you even have to earn the Holy Spirit. You have to earn all these things. And the thing is, is that you cannot buy off God. God has made provision for us that as we come, that he is so giving in his incredible grace, his salvation being free. There is a surrender. A surrender is you give your heart to Jesus Christ. But it's so, you know, wonderful, his grace. And how dare I sit up here and say that I deserve the salvation and the blessings of God because I've earned it. I pray that none of us would ever think that. What I have earned is hell because of my sin. And because of the goodness of God and provision of God, he has provided that salvation for me by his incredible grace and mercy in my life. Ben Haddad, you cannot pay off God. You cannot pay off Elijah. So Elijah is going to give a word to him, and Elijah said to him, Go say to him in verse 10, You shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. That will cover all the bases, won't it? So you're going to live, but you're going to die. All right? And we're going to see what he means here in verse 11. And he set his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. And Hazael said, Why is my Lord weeping? And he answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire, and their young men you will kill with their sword, and you will dash their children and rip open their women with, with child. So Hazael said, but what is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? And Elijah answered, the Lord has shown me that you will become king over Syria. This is what you're going to do. Ben-Hadad's going to recover, but you're going to do him in, Haziel. You're going to assassinate him. And then what you're going to do to Israel is even worse. And he says, who am I that I'm a dog that I would do this thing? No way I would do this. When we see the news in the world, when we see the evil that is out there, how, how people you know, do such incredible wicked things, and isn't it interesting that they'll interview their neighbors or family members and say, oh, that person was such a, I can't believe they did that. They're such a nice person. They're such a quiet person. They're such a pleasant person. Because the Bible teaches us that man's heart is desperately wicked. And here this man's heart is desperately wicked. He says, how can I do this thing? He's going to do these things as we continue reading. We read that, uh, verse 14, he departed from Elijah and came to his master who said to him, what did Elijah say to you? And he answered, he told me you would surely recover. But it happened on the next day, he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face so that he died and Hazael reigned in his place. So he ends up assassinating the king. Taking over, he does what Elijah says, and he will do as he says also when he will come into Israel, and he will do these gross things that are described to us here. The world desperately needs Jesus Christ. He's the one that changes hearts, regenerates hearts, makes us a new creation in him. But Jeremiah is true. There are those who will come along and say there's good in every person. Uh Uh-uh. The Bible says there's bad and there's sin, and our hearts are desperately wicked. And we need Jesus Christ is what we need to make us a new creation in Christ. Verse 16, now in the fifth year, Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat having been king in Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as king in Judah. 
And he was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, just the house of Ahab, Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. You remember Jehoshaphat? He was a good king, and he was always going up to see Ahab, king of Israel, and, and um, he ended up yoking himself with Ahab, who was this evil king, and Ahab's wife Jezebel. And we talked about how the scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So Jehoshaphat, he made the mistake. He had his son, would marry Ahab's daughter, and he falls into idol worship. And we're going to see that it's going to affect very severely the house of Judah and bring idol worship to the house of Judah. But let's continue verse 19. Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David, as he promised him to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. So we see that uh, the Lord uh, would extend his grace to Judah because of David. And this guy is, even though he is evil, we see in verse 20, In the days of Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. So Joram went to Zaar uh, and all his chariots with him. And he rose by night and attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him. And the captains and the chariots and the troops fled to their tents. And thus Edom had been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day. And Libna revolted at this time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then A. Uh, Haziah, his son, reigned in his place. This guy was a total failure, and he left the nation weak because of his wickedness. Edom rebels and has a revolt against Judah. Listen, if you're not following after the ways of the Lord, dads, you're going to lead your family weak. If you're not being the spiritual leader that God has called you to be, moms and dads, lead your family and what is right and good before the Lord. And doing the ways of the Lord and desiring to please the Lord with your life. Otherwise, your family is going to be weak. And we see a nation that is weak because of this bad king of Judah. We continue as Ahaziah reigns in Judah. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Joram, king of Judah, began to reign. And Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Ataliah, the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. We're going to see that this Ataliah, that she is really bad news. Also, it is told to us in the book of Chronicles that, um, that this guy, Ahaziah, what he does is he ends up killing a lot of his brothers, and he um, also uh, would kill um, you know, many of the leaders of Judah as well. And we're going to see that Ataliah is going to do the same thing um, as well. But verse 27, he walked in the ways of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord like the house of Ahab, for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. Now he went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to war against Haziel, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Joram. And then King Joram went back to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted um, on him at Ramah. And when he had fought against Haziel, king of Syria, and uh, a Haziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab in Jezreel, because he was sick. 
and that will lead us to chapter 9, and we will pick that up next time when we study 2 Kings. So, Father, we thank you for this study as we've gone over these two chapters, and, Lord, a lot of history, a lot of names, but a lot of lessons that are very important as well. And, Father, I pray that if there is anyone that is here tonight that is listening to this message, maybe here in the sanctuary, uh, in the coffee shop, uh, maybe listening to this message later on the radio, but we know that Jesus Christ has made provision for us to live. And just as we saw that 2,000 years ago in Samaria, that there were people that were dying, and they were dying because of the rejection of the Lord. And Lord, we know spiritually that all of us, that we are leprous, all of us, that we've been stricken with sin. But Jesus Christ came and made provision by going to Calvary's cross. He died for our sins. We can't purchase salvation. We can't earn it. It comes by surrendering. It comes by repenting and turning to Jesus and saying, my life is not my own. Jesus, you died on Calvary's cross for me, and I am a sinner. I confess it, and I now surrender to you, Lord. And if anyone is hearing this message, you can pray right where you're sitting. That you can pray, Jesus, I believe in you, that you are the Son of God who died for me, that you are the one, the bread of life, and I am hungry and I am thirsty for righteousness, and I know that you are the one that brings living water, that you're the one, Lord, that as I partake of you, as I believe in you, that there's forgiveness, and I need forgiveness because I'm a sinner, and I confess it. And Lord, I turn to you and surrender my heart to you. And I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. I know that you're alive. I want to be a part of the Lord's army. I want to be a part of your kingdom. So thank you for dying for me. And thank you for hearing my prayer. And Father, for all of us that are here tonight, as we're going to be entering into a Thanksgiving week, and Lord, as we enter into Christmas season, we have so much to be thankful for.